Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Just a heads up that pretty early on in today's podcast, you'll hear some bad language, not from me of course, but it might be a good idea to skip about a minute if there are kids in the room. The Guardian. Dominic Cummings paints a picture of complete chaos in Downing Street at the start of the pandemic and throws just about everyone under the bus along the way. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Helen McMorris said, I've come through here to the Prime Minister's office to tell you all, quote, I think we are absolutely fucked. Former Chief Advisor to the Prime Minister turned scorned critic Dominic Cummings gave evidence to a Marathon Commons Committee on Wednesday. He's still going as we record this, but he's already spectacularly attacked the government's handling of the pandemic. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who, uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that. A quick summary. Until mid-March last year, the government believed the only way to manage the virus was to allow it to spread until herd immunity was achieved, with chickenpox parties even suggested. Boris Johnson completely failed to grasp the gravity of the situation, calling Covid a scare story and at one point even suggesting Chris Whitty could inject him with the virus live on TV to show how safe it was. And the Health Secretary Matt Hancock should have been fired for allegedly lying and general incompetence. It's hard to see how heads won't roll after this, although we've said that before about government scandal, so what will be the ramifications of today? As Johnson grapples with Cummings, Pretty Patel is busy battling with immigration reform. Later on, I chat to Daniel Trilling and Lord David Blunkett about the historical issues that continue to plague the Home Office today. Plus, weeks after appointing a new levelling-up advisor, after critics argued the government's plan to tackle regional inequality lacked clarity, Peter Walker and Will Jennings try and figure out what Boris Johnson's goals actually are. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as we record, Dominic Cummings is still presenting evidence to the Select Committee, but we have quite a bit to get through. So as Westminster reels from the dramatic revelations, I wanted to chat to Sonia Soda, the chief leader writer for The Observer and Guardian columnist, to get her take on everything. And just a quick warning, we were so excited about today's events that I failed to record my end of the conversation with Sonia, so the sound might not be quite as good as usual. Apologies for that. Sonia, as always, it's lovely to have you on. Um... It's a bit of an extraordinary day, isn't it, in Westminster? Yeah, it has been. We've all been waiting for this testimony from Dominic Cummings in the House of Commons for quite some time. And 
you know, I think there was a lot of people saying, well, we, we sort of know the broad parameters of, of what's what's happening. So how much is his account really going to add? Um, but it has been pretty explosive, it's fair to say. And while it is just a testimony of one man, and, you know, obviously, if it was a proper inquiry, you'd be hearing from a much broader range of voices. Some of the things that we've learned have just been, there's been some quite extraordinary allegations in there. And me and others were realising at this point, the system is basically delaying announcing all of these things because there's not a proper plan in place. I was very struck by this, this sense of, a sort of terrifying sense really of complete chaos in the early days, or not even the very early days, the sort of mid, early to mid-March last year, which is obviously sort of a crucial phase when decisions were being made. And there was just this sense of complete chaos. There's one particular day he described, wasn't there, where... So we had this sort of completely insane situation in which part of the building was saying, are we going to bomb Iraq? Part of the building was arguing about whether or not we're going to do quarantine or not do quarantine. The Prime Minister has his girlfriend going crackers about something completely trivial. You know, Boris Johnson was trying to think about whether to engage in some Middle Eastern bombing raid, but also Carrie Simmons was a bit cross about a story someone had written about her dog, you know, and there were various other things going on. And just this sense of kind of, of, of utter confusion. It sounds like total chaos. And I actually think it's quite frightening hearing one person's account of what was going on behind the scenes, because in some ways... We sort of knew that the government got it fairly catastrophically wrong in early March, that there was a change in strategy, that that, you know, undoubtedly did cost lies and that government didn't learn from its mistakes. So you can kind of sort of put your imagination to good use and sort of imagine what was going on. But there's nothing quite like hearing an account from behind the scenes. And even though we've had quite a lot of reporting about what different people say, nothing has really matched this account from Cummings. So I don't know about anyone else, but as I've been listening to Dominic Cummings, I have sort of, it it kind of brings back how you were feeling back at that time and that sort of panic that everyone felt about kind of, well, does the government really know what it's doing here and how bad is it going to be so I think it does add a human element to the tale that even though we know the broad brushstrokes of what happened hearing just how chaotic it was behind the scenes is quite scary I think yeah I think that's right and and you know you you imagine perhaps when you when you sort of look at number 10 from outside you imagine there's this sort of presiding figure which is the prime minister who's making all the decisions and that's where the power lies and he's the guy that pulls the levers kind of thing but but the way that Cummings talked about Johnson and his role at various points was pretty extraordinary wasn't it? In in February the prime minister regarded this as um, just a a scare story he he regarded he described it as the new swine flu. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways to people who've watched Boris Johnson's premiership, some of the stuff that Dominic Cummings says won't be a great surprise in terms of the broad nature of his character. So we've known for a long time he's incredibly indecisive, he's chaotic, he can't make difficult decisions, he's swayed too much by the the sort of last person that he's spoken to. But really hearing the detail of some of the conversations between Cummings and Johnson, not just some of the awful things that he's alleged to have said, things like, you know, chaos and the Prime Minister saying, well, you know, chaos isn't that bad because at least people look to me for direction, the sort of gist of what he was saying. I mean, it's just, it's really quite jaw-dropping, to be honest, to have all that colour put around what we know, essentially, Boris Johnson's character to be, just kind of like a terrible leader for these times. Mm, and there are, as I was saying, there were some decisions where it feels like there was a, a group think and, and the scientific advice was was 
in the wrong place or there wasn't enough preparation. But there, there are also, it seems, decisions where Boris Johnson really, or certainly in the Cummings version of events, where Boris Johnson was quite critical, for, quite critical, for, for example, border policy. He made very clear, didn't he, that it was Boris Johnson who didn't want to, for example, stop flights coming from China and so on. Fundamentally, there was no proper border policy because the Prime Minister never wanted a proper border policy. What, one of the things I find so extraordinary, Heather, listening to this testimony is, you know, Boris Johnson was apparently saying last summer, like, oh, the first lockdown was such a mistake. How? How could you look at what happened and not not see that, that the issue was that we didn't lock down sooner rather than lockdown was a mistake and we'd have been better off doing it, you know, not doing it altogether? It's just very hard to see how any kind of rational, sentient person would kind of look at what happened and come to that conclusion. Yeah, and I think that's the decisions get harder and harder to explain as you go on, don't they? When this early phase that we talked about, where you know the, the advice was conflicting and there was lots of other things going on, and it wasn't clear how serious it was in mid March. That you know clearly a mistake. But as you say, by the time you get to September, when you've sort of you feel like you've played this all once already, it, it's it's more damning that even by then Boris Johnson was kind of holding out, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think when you look at um, the, the sort of cost of government, bad government decisions, there's no question that bad decisions were, were made in March. But to some extent, you know, it was it was a bad mistake, as Dominic Cummings said, a huge error that resulted in, in the loss of life. But to repeat those errors, which is absolutely what happened, the, you know, the prime minister was resisting scientific pressure and advice to go for a circuit breaker lockdown early. He delayed till November. He then relaxed restrictions in early December when cases were going up really, really quickly because he wanted to give people Christmas and he said the lockdown was only going to be a month. He really did not learn the lessons from March, from what he got wrong in March, from what Cummings and the scientific advisors got wrong in March. And that is unforgivable. It's absolutely unforgivable. Once, okay, but twice? And there were some decisions, it seemed to me the decisions were divided into sort of different groups because there were clearly in that early phase, uh, you know, Dominic Cummings talked about a sort of group thing, didn't he? There was a, there was clearly a collective sense, and this embraced the scientists as well and the experts as well as the officials. There was a collective sense, wasn't there, that that you know, you couldn't really stop this virus. We couldn't possibly do a Taiwan style or a Chinese style sort of lockdown. You know, that wasn't a sort of British thing to do. You wouldn't, you know, freedom loving people like the Brits wouldn't wouldn't take any notice if you told them to stay at home. So we only had one option. And this that one option was was herd immunity. It was to kind of let it travel through the population as, uh, you know, hopefully control it a bit and, and wait until enough of us were immune to it. I mean, the government now says that wasn't the plan. But Cummings set out a pretty good case that 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 was really what people thought was the only option at that point. I'm I'm completely baffled as to why Number 10 is trying to deny that because we, that was the official plan. You can see it in the COBRA documents that I've brought, brought along. So I think what's interesting about it is, you know, Cummings' big thing has always been group thing is really think is really bad and you've got to have people who are willing to sort of question assumptions and and subject uh, assumptions to kind of different thinking and that's what he's always said that his mission to do was in government but what comes out of his testimony today actually and there was kind of quite an interesting level of contrition there about what he's got wrong to some extent was that he said it took him way too long to challenge that group thing and that that was part of 
government decision making that ended up costing people's lives and that he's really sorry for that. So I do think that was interesting because it's basically Cummings admitting, even though he sort of lambasts people for going along with groupthink, um, that actually he did it himself. And Sonia, he's he's absolutely kind of coruscant. I mean, there were various people he seemed determined to take down and, and and other people that he he barely mentioned who it sort of felt he he might perhaps be keener to protect. But um, poor Matt Hancock really came in for it, didn't he? I think that the Secretary of State for Health should have been fired for at least 15, 20 things, including lying to everybody in multiple occasions in meeting after meeting in the in the cabinet room and publicly. Yes, I mean, the the charges levelled against Matt Hancock are really dreadful. Um, He's been accused of lying at cabinet committees. Uh, uh, Cummings says that the cabinet secretary actually said that that he didn't, you know, the system isn't sort of designed to cope with a minister like Hancock, who lies, which is is a really extraordinary claim. And it's something that the prime minister kind of denied in prime minister's question. So so someone's lying here. Um, And, you know, this idea that Matt Hancock interfered with the operation of test and trace to try and get it to meet, you know, this this target that he set very, very publicly to the detriment of the scheme. And again, in a way that, that would have had an impact on people's health. These are incredibly serious allegations that Hancock's going to answer, got to answer. Um, the one thing I would, the one sort of slight note of caution I would sound is that Cummings himself is, is not known to be a reliable witness. And actually, you know, just as we were sort of coming on air to record this, we were hearing a very different account of um uh, Cummings's trip to Barnard Castle that he gave at the time. We know that that Cummings himself does is not always completely upfront, honest, and transparent about what he tells us. So I do think that there's an element here of you know him coming into this knowing who he wants to take down um and you know there were some people who've been you know actually sort of received relatively sort of glowing um accounts uh people like Rishi Sunak for example and I do think we need to think about well are there ulterior motivations here it would be wrong to say well we're hearing what Cummings says and just to take take that as read because Cummings himself is not a reliable witness (laughs) and he also had the sort of temerity in a way to say there's a very profound question about the nature of our political system that means that we got at the last election a choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. You know, it was kind of, he said it was crackers that he himself was in government in such a senior position. And it was crackers that Boris Johnson was prime minister and that, that you know, it was crazy that you had an, a, a political system that presented with the voters in December 2019 with the choice of Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, which is a kind of extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Given that, you know, he, he was very closely involved in bringing Boris Johnson, you know, to to the electorate and bringing him into Downing Street. Well, completely. And, you know, he was the one who was, he was a sort of mastermind of the 29, Boris Johnson's 2019 election campaign. I'm sure if you asked him, he would say, well, you know, Boris Johnson was a bit of a useful idiot for me to do what I really wanted to do, which was get Brexit through. But I mean, goodness, what, it, what does that say about him as a person and the lack of respect that he has for the electorate? Downing Street have been trying very hard to detract from this hearing in in advance and and you know we'll obviously get a bit more of that today and the prime minister has already had the chance to deny some of the charges that dominic cummings has put but does it does it do boris johnson much harm sonia do you think this i mean as you say he's an unreliable witness the public probably think of him as an unreliable witness but you know do these sort of things cut through to voters that the idea of boris johnson saying that over 80 only over 80 year olds are dying from covid you know getting the the policy wrong in march getting it wrong in september and so on 
So all this stuff is kind of stuff that we already know and that the public seem to have moved on from. You know, the polls show the public thought that the government handled the pandemic badly last year, but it was extraordinary circumstances. Vaccine rollouts going well. This sort of relitigates it all because there's nothing like giving something a human story and humanising the story of what happened to kind of, you know, put it back in people's consciousnesses. So I haven't quite made up my mind. I know this is a bit of a cop out. I haven't quite made up my mind how much I think this is going to affect public perceptions yet. I suspect that what will happen is it won't do the government too much harm right now, but that if something goes wrong in the pandemic handling um, in, in the next few weeks or months, this stuff is going to come back and it will really harm the government then. You know, we all hope that it doesn't, obviously. Um, but also, in you know, in a couple of years when we're revisiting this through an inquiry, again, this is stuff that might kind of really start to hurt Boris Johnson then. So I, I, I don't think he is, escapes it entirely. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Sonia, how do Labour play this from now? Keir Starmer obviously leapt on various things that Dominic Cummings had said and challenged the Prime Minister about them at Prime Minister's questions. There were, there were the questions about Labour's approach during the local election campaign, wasn't there, that they focused too much on sort of backward looking issues, perhaps on sleaze and so on. But uh, does, does Labour need to keep hammering home the role of Boris Johnson in some of this terrible decision making, do you think? I think so. Um, look, I think the public maybe aren't sort of in a place where they want to hear loads about um, the mistakes that the government has made right now in the here and now. And that's always been a problem for Labour, I think, in this in since the sort of uh, last general election. It's found itself in this place where actually, like as an opposition, your job is to scrutinise what government's doing wrong and you hope that that gets you ahead with the public as well. And we've sort of seen a bit of a divergence there because both with Brexit, I mean, no one really, not, not, the public aren't really that interested in Brexit at the moment. And then on the pandemic, I think there is a danger for Labour in the sense that if you go too hard in government, it looks like you're making political hay out of a national emergency and a national crisis. But I, I do think that it's just so important that that the government is held to account for what's gone wrong, even if it doesn't, get them far politically at the moment because it is their job as an opposition and I do think that there will come a time where actually it, it, it does help um, land their political message as well. Mm, yeah and, and just just lastly Sonia I wonder what you think is next for Dominic Cummings he's this very sort of strange figure isn't he, he doesn't have any loyalty loyalty to anybody he's quite happy to sort of drag through the mud the, the name of anyone he's ever worked for but, but and, and and yet you know in, in some ways has as you say some kind of startling insights. Are you expecting him to pop up at, at some point in the future? Is he going to be in, I don't know, Wishy Sunak's number 10, for example? I would be really shocked if that happened because I just <laughs> I just think after, I mean, goodness, if you were a politician, no matter how amazing or brilliant you thought he was, and I do think it is it is very over-egged, his, his capabilities, but watching that um, evidence session today, you would just, you just wouldn't touch him with a barge pole, would you? There's absolutely no way I think any politician can trust him now going forward. So I do think his, his sort of career in politics, you know, is, is probably, um, it is probably over. I think you're probably right. Uh, Sonia Soda, thank, thanks very much. Thanks, Heather. After the break, we look at the failures of the Home Office and Peter Walker learns more about the politics of levelling up. We'll be right back. Cool. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now on Monday... Home Secretary Priti Patel officially launched a US-style digital visa system that she claimed would help the government to count the number of people entering and leaving the UK accurately for the first time. For anyone coming to the UK who doesn't have a visa or immigration status, they will soon need an electronic travel authorisation. This is just the latest announcement in Patel's plans to enact a complete overhaul of the UK's asylum and immigration system, with critics calling aspects of the plans inhumane. She's not the first Home Secretary to grapple with the immigration system, the Windrush scandal being a prime example, and she won't be the last. But is there something inherently broken about the Home Office? According to journalist Daniel Trilling and the many current and former workers at the Home Office he spoke to recently, yes there is. Daniel detailed the various issues in a long read for The Guardian published a couple of weeks ago. Earlier this week I spoke to him and Lord David Blunkett, who served as Home Secretary in the early 2000s under Tony Blair. Daniel, perhaps you could start us off by telling us how you went about writing this this um, really lovely long read that you've written about the Home Office, it's somewhat depressing long read about the Home Office. Um, it, it, you spoke to lots of people, didn't you, from sort of top to bottom, really, um, um, and both inside the Home Office and also those those who sort of suffered as it's ha- at its hands, as it were. Yes, well, the, the piece took me about six months in total to report and write up. But really, because I've reported on various aspects of immigration and border policy for about 10 years, um, it stemmed from something that I'd, I'd encountered quite a lot, where people who, who work with the Home Office, lawyers, for example, or campaigners, or ordinary people who get caught up in immigration policy, would often have this question, why do they behave this way? You know, sort of seemingly illogical uh, behavior that comes out of the Home Office. And that was one of the, the main questions that I set out to answer with, with the the reporting for the piece. And David, when you spoke to Daniel, did it did it make sense to you that that, you know, this is a department that's had a, a very sort of troubled period and that is is, you know, not fit for purpose was the phrase, wasn't it, that John Reed used? But but d- does that ring true to you? Yeah, I don't think we should just dub the whole department. I mean there are things about the Home Office historically that saw itself as a almost hovering above problems. People look back and think we had a liberal period and then we had a difficult period. We didn't. Um, the attitudes after the Second World War within the Home Office and beyond were horrendous, uh, as they were in, in 1968. Those two Labour governments didn't distinguish themselves by great liberal policies on, on immigration and, and borders but it is inherent in it that you've got a problem that nobody knows how to resolve easily, that the tensions between securing confidence in the system and your borders and a much more open liberal approach in a, in a global 
context just don't match and trying to get those two to work is then completely bedeviled by an administrative system that's never worked. Dealing with people is very different. I'm not talking about processing someone's claim. I'm talking about the basic administration of not losing the passports, of not, not losing the documentation, of not having, as we have at the moment, 109,000 people who are in limbo because their cases are not being processed. All of that was there when I was there and it's still there now. And Daniel, is it is part of the problem that it's almost impossible, you know, it's a sort of sprawling department and it's almost too big? I mean, there's, there's that tension, as David said, between, you know, tr- trying to be as liberal as the economy needs us to be, but as tough as perhaps the public wants us to be on immigration. But is, 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 is it also a department that's trying to do too much? Well, I think historically that that was the feeling. But obviously, after 2006, the Home Office was was split into two. And and the idea being very much to tackle that problem. And uh, some of its functions were given over to the the newly created Ministry of Justice. And then the bits that remained in the Home Office were supposed to be much more uh, sort of lean and efficient and focused on security. So since 2006, 2007... Uh, the Home Office has been primarily responsible for policing, counter-terrorism and uh, immigration control. But I think it goes to show that the fact that that didn't solve all of these problems shows that it's not simply about size. I think it's the combination for me of seeing immigration primarily as a security concern. Uh, I know David was saying that, you know, the sort of challenge politicians have is to balance uh, an open liberal immigration policy with uh, making sure the system is secure and so on. But I think it's the security aspects that have led over time with a feeling that this also isn't really anything that people in government want to invest a lot of money in uh, and, and and to create a system that actually works properly and treats people humanely. And David, how easy is it for a Home Secretary to come in and sort of change the culture, as it were? How how much of a sort of culture is there about the place and how sort of long-standing and deep-seated is that, do you think? I I don't think there's a receptiveness to change. I mean, we're we're being pejorative here because obviously there are loads of good people uh, struggling in the Home Office disadvantaged to some extent from 2006, at least when I was there, there was a very broad swathe of policy and people could change from one route to another. So you had the opportunity of promotion within the department without being stuck uh, in the immigration, as it was then in the Immigration Nationality Directorate. The problem I experienced was doubly difficult because I came in with quite some radical ideas about citizenship and identity and trying to leaven the system and uh, all all of that got shot to pieces on the 11th of September, literally, uh, in 2001, when Mm. the element of security suddenly became really critical and people movements across the world accelerated on the back of the intervention in Afghanistan and subsequently in Iraq. So we, we had a triple situation on our hands, which, as Daniel says, involved security as well. I, I think looking back, we did the best we could, but the best we could wasn't good enough. And Daniel, you talk about the fear that envelops the Home Office, that, that you know officials and so on feel. What What's that? Why, why is that the case? The fear most of all was kind of driven by this sense that uh, either 
you would be portrayed as having lost control of immigration. And I think there the pressure from, from the right-wing press was particularly acute, uh, both for politicians and civil servants. But also the fear of being perceived to just be not competent. And uh, as, as we said before, this phrase, not fit for purpose, was first first aired by, by John Reed in 2006. But, but people who've worked in the department much more recently than that would tell me that that idea that you didn't want to be seen as not fit for purpose would would kind of drive how you behaved and I think that mentality is quite quite crucial for understanding how things develop not not only over the last 20 to 30 years but particularly in the last 10 years with the the rise of the hostile environment where uh, there were certainly one or two former civil servants I spoke to who had been involved in designing hostile environment policies who who more or less said they knew it was wrong or they knew it wouldn't achieve what it was setting out to achieve. But they felt, first of all, it's the civil service's job to to do what, what ministers ask of them. But also they had to look like they were competent because they didn't want to be seen as not fit for purpose again. So the agreement, for instance, I reached with Nicolas Sarkozy to have immigration security on French soil and subsequently on the Eurostars to, to Belgium and to Paris was pretty crucial because it immediately uh, reassured people that we had a, a functioning system that would deal with the situation before people got here. And 32,000 people were stopped in the year leading up to the pandemic from actually reaching Britain because of those controls. Now, that probably was the most uh, effective administrative measure that I managed to get them to take whilst we were trying to sort out the massive backlog in the system of those who were here. And of course, you might recall, we had an amnesty from those who'd been in the UK before 2000 uh, and who were families. And we thought we were giving an amnesty to 50,000. By the time we processed them, something in the region of 150,000 people had actually been dealt with under that amnesty. Now, you can just feel from, from me describing that, what the enormity of that backlog must have been. So we were dealing with a system that almost hid the problem and we were trying to reveal it because it's really struck me that what you end up with if you're not careful is a massive cohort of people who are simply under the radar. They're they're working, living illegally. It's bad for them and it's bad for the rest of us. And in a way, Daniel, there's a line from that, isn't there, to the sort of what was called the hostile environment. Now it's called the compliant environment, isn't it? Sort of slightly less nasty, but also kind of sinister. But, you know, you, you, you end up with, with this approach, which is about sort of trying to make life, people's lives difficult in the hope that they'll go away. Yeah, I'm, well, one of one of the sort of big questions I had with with the work for this piece was sort of how much of what we we now know about the hostile environment and what we found out as as the Windrush scandal was exposed and so on, uh, can you can you put down to specific policies that were introduced by Theresa May or people who came after her, uh, and how much is there actually a continuity between what what's been happening in the last 10 years and what was happening in in the the decade or so before that there actually is a lot of continuity because what what you have from the late 90s onwards is the the sort of increasing emphasis put on security and finding ways to contain what is seen as a political problem uh, you have labor governments building structures that maybe the intent was to get this balance between sort of an, uh, the the soft and the hard i think was how how david put it to me when i interviewed him but it's it's the hard bits that really end up 
enduring such as the the hugely expanded network of immigration detention centers that were built in the 2000s uh, but then when the conservatives come in uh, at the head of the coalition government after 2010 you see this kind of acceleration in in what's happening uh, partly because resources are sucked out of the system due to austerity policies, uh, but also because they're at the same time trying to enforce an even harsher form of immigration control, which isn't only aimed at, say, managing asylum, but really starts reaching out into all of these different bits of society. And I think the very often this ends up getting talked about as simply a political issue, you know, sort of, so how do politicians strike a balance, keep the press happy, keep voters happy, and so on. But but all the way through this, whatever trade-offs are made between security and openness and, and so on, there, there are the lives of individuals at stake at the centre of this. And not only is this a question of whether people are legal or illegal but the the dysfunctional way in which the home office is home office manages immigration combined with the political hostility that i think has been dominant means that people from all walks of life with all different forms of immigration status and also british citizens themselves end up getting caught up in this system and having their lives destroyed David, I always had a bit of, you, you mentioned it, the EU accession countries there. And there's always a bit of a feeling to some extent when Theresa May was Home Secretary, for example, that, that the government got tougher and tougher on non-EU migrants because there was this whole other bit of migration that it couldn't control. And they kept setting these targets and of course they couldn't meet them. And so they were, you know, got sort of, the tone got nastier and nastier towards non-EU migrants because that was the bit that they could control. I wonder whether you think there's the possibility of a sort of, reset now post brexit now now there isn't this this sort of bit of migration that that you know the the, the free movement that flows freely i wonder whether that there's a sort of political shift there that that might take place well the rhetoric with the point system is that at the moment but the layout of the so-called new immigration uh, policy and reset is cloud cuckoo land um it's setting up to fail and I think will lead to great mistrust because it suggests that we can simply have a two-tier system for uh, asylum where we throw people back to some unspecified country when they've arrived here with the wrong documentation or because they've been smuggled and we'll only uh, acknowledge people as true asylum seekers if they arrive with documentation. Well, if they get here with a correct passport and all the necessary papers, uh, they'll probably be refused asylum on the grounds that they weren't at risk in their own country and they were able perfectly well to travel. So we're, we're heading for a nightmare on that. And we're heading for complete contradiction in terms of economic migration, where we might end up saying that we're quite happy to have people with skills we need, but not allowing those with the skills to reach here. If you've got two million pounds, you can simply come. Um, You don't have to invest it. You just have to buy shares. It's a crazy system. And I think we're heading for a real fall. And whatever problems we had, and we did make mistakes, uh, I think we'll pale into insignificance in the next uh, five to 10 years. Who knows? That's a, that's probably a good sort of portentous note on which to end, I think. Um, and uh, Daniel and, and David Blunkett, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a really fascinating essay about the government's plans to level up the country, titled The Politics of Leveling Up. 
It explores the pretty seismic realignment currently happening in UK politics and why levelling up is an opportunity for the Conservative Party to try and find its footing with new voters, all the while trying to hold on to some of their traditional ideologies. But there are flaws with this plan. One being that 18 months after first publishing their manifesto, no one, including ministers, have quite grasped what it means to level up. So how can they follow through? My colleague Peter Walker spoke to one of the authors of that essay I read, Will Jennings, Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the University of Southampton. Brilliant. So, Will, many, many thanks for uh, coming on the show. Um, you have literally days ago co-authored and published um, an academic paper called The Politics of Levelling Up. So you, as much as anyone should know, you know, if a voter was to ask, what is levelling up? You know, what, what exactly does it mean? Well, well, the irony is in some regards that no one really knows. And that's true both of voters, who I think are still grappling with this phrase, a bit like one of these phrases that we throw around in Westminster politics and academic circles uh, with, with abandon. You know, ordinary voters don't really think about levelling up in, or don't understand it. But to be honest, the government's not sure either. The, the, the government just recently appointed uh, a new policy chief for levelling up, uh, Neil O'Brien, who's advising the prime minister. And that the, the reason for that is actually, you know, on, on being elected, Boris Johnson talked about um, uh, levelling up, you know, kind of repaying the trust of voters in the places that had, had um, put, their, put their faith in the Conservatives for the first time. But actually, it's not very clear what levelling up. There's, a, there's an array of different policies that have been kind of thrown around. But as a, as a policy agenda, it's actually quite incoherent. And it's not yet clear precisely what the real aspirations are in terms of social economic outcomes. Is part of it just this idea of almost having like flashy one-off projects in certain towns? Um, it does feel that a reasonable amount of levelling up is, I don't know, directing money at people who feel they've been ignored by London for a bit too long. I mean, so far, a huge amount of the emphasis has been actually on the the narrative of responding to people who feel they've uh, been neglected by Westminster. So in, in many regards, uh, levelling up is a response to that feeling of disaffection, uh, resentment towards Westminster. And we see in the survey data that, you know, very strong evidence that the further people are from London, they feel that government doesn't care about their area, they feel lower levels of trust in MPs. And so to date, things like the Towns Fund have been ways that the government's been able to demonstrate that it's listening to voters. And so in that regard, so far, levelling up is, is about responding to feelings of neglect in areas as much as being a large scale programme of spending. And this is something which the Conservatives, and particularly Boris Johnson, have been able to kind of engage in quite well. There's this paradox, almost, you mentioned in the paper, that a lot of people seem to find politicians kind of quite untrustworthy. But in a sense, it almost doesn't matter because they also rely on them an awful lot to kind of do things. Is, is this almost something that Boris Johnson has been able to take advantage of? Well, well, Boris Johnson is a particularly un unusual politician in this regard. I mean, I think it's important that COVID has shown us um, a real paradox at the heart of contemporary British politics, which is that you know, people are very distrusting of politicians in general, uh, and they certainly don't trust, you know, if you ask in an opinion poll or a survey, you know, do people trust Boris Johnson to tell the truth? They'll say no. But at the same mm -hmm. token, a lot of the research we've done in the last year using a lot of focus groups um, uh, around kind of looking at COVID and the government's response is actually that deep down people have a latent trust in the government to, to look after them, to care for them. And I think levelling up is part of that same expression that, that people 
people feel their area has been neglected by um, politicians over many years. And there's been obviously been a conservative government for a decade. Yet deep down, they're willing to put their trust in politicians who'll say they listen, they hear uh, and they care. And, and I think Johnson is interesting. And I think, again, opponents misjudge because I think it's easy just to see him as a, a kind of an, you know, an inauthentic politician who's it's all an act. But actually, in some way, voters see him as very authentic and not in the regard that, you know, kind of the Boris Johnson Act isn't isn't something that's slightly constructed, but they think that he does care and he is different. And so that kind of differentness is actually really important in levelling up because it's about part of this political realignment we're going through that old party loyalties are slowly fraying and, that, and that's part of a very long standing process and he offers something different that's different to the conservative party actually but also just different to westminster politicians in general well he's offering a completely new tory thing well not completely new but certainly one that hasn't been seen in the same way for quite some time which is this idea of these quite interventionist and reasonably high spending economic policies with this kind of social conservative with a small c culture war etc cetera, etc cetera, is leveling up a kind of fairly integral part of the first aspect of that of promising to intervene in a quite kind of unconservative way i mean i think it's it's really worth um being skeptical on this front that this does so far represent a huge ideological shift for Johnson or the Conservatives. Uh, I mean, actually, if you look at, you know, John, Johnson's you know history, um, although he was mayor of London, he didn't really have a hugely interventionist approach there. And if you look at many of his speeches over the years, um, in many ways, he was appealing to the to the right of the Conservative Party. And, and the sorts of sums that we're seeing in terms of levelling up, some of them are substantial, but often things like the Towns Fund, in the broader scheme of government spending, are not huge interventionist programmes. They're not actually about expanding the size of the state in, in the sort of way that you might expect of a really kind of expansionist uh, policy. Uh, and so I think that what's going to be interesting is the extent to which that interventionism um, shifts and looks into other areas of social economic mm. life. And, you know, bluntly, one of the um, challenges in terms of turning around uh, struggling towns, uh, you know, deprived towns, which is part of this agenda, is that many of these places really require quite substantial interventions in terms of um, social economic policy, whether it's education, skills and so forth. And, and things like kind of towns fund deals that are £25 million pounds, you know, to a kind of town to, to, you know, to refresh its high street or so forth, in, in the wider scheme of things are quite small compared to the sorts of substantial interventions that are going to be required if, if this talk of levelling up opportunity is going to be delivered. And I think that's where it's really important for the jury still to be out um, because I, we still really have, haven't seen much meat on the bones yet uh, of um, of what, what this levelling up agenda will look like. So is there, is there still a danger that levelling up could end up just being peppering around the country with a few symbolic projects? You talk in the paper about government by uh, spectacle. Is this almost part of it, just almost like showing voters that you care without necessarily changing that much. I think I think that the spectacle is really important because it is about the demonstration that government cares. I mean, bluntly, one, I think it's often said, uh, I think wrongly, that previous governments haven't attended to these issues. Many governments have tried and failed to address the deep 
geographical inequalities in our economies in, in society in, in Britain, um, both in the last 20 years, but over a much longer period. And actually, many of the roots are, of our economic inequalities and, and regional inequalities go back hundreds of years. And so in terms of turning places around, it's a much, much bigger push because there's actually a kind of a history of um, policy interventions, measures from Whitehall um, that have tried and failed um, to varying different degrees to actually address these problems. And I guess on the other side of the political equation, you have well both what Labour can potentially do to respond to this, but also this idea that perhaps some of the traditional conservative areas, whether the kind of commuter belts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are going to react negatively to this. Do you get the sense that that this could be a factor? I think long term, it's really interesting about what's happening to the Conservative Party right now. I, I actually think in some ways there's disproportionate focus on what's happened to the Labour Party. We all know that the Labour Party, like many social democratic parties across the world, faces particular structural challenges to its votes in former industrial areas with uh, the fraying of um, people's ident- identification and loyalty to the party uh, and the changing nature of um, the, the society and economy, the shrinking of the working class. But I actually think levelling up on this new agenda points to a rather strange electoral coalition that the Conservatives have put together, which is Conservative voters in the in the shires and the suburbs um, who may have quite different visions for the economy and society. And, and, and you know, traditional Conservative voters who favour a smaller state, lower taxation, may, as, as time goes on, um, become increasingly sceptical about a more interventionist um, state. And I think that's the real challenge for the Conservatives under Boris Johnson. You know, it's a big question for Conservatives ideologically, people who consider themselves Conservatives, is what modern Conservatism stands for. That seems to me quite a profound question that we haven't really scratched the surface with in terms of levelling up yet. One final thing. I mean, you, you, you make the point that there's this talk about levelling up whilst in most places public services are still being kept, cut back. And you also say uh, levelling up will, this is direct quote, eventually crash into the hard fiscal reality that not everywhere can be levelled up. It is basically levelling up a kind of political project with a sell-by date. Is it intended almost just to win the Conservatives another election or perhaps two? But in, in the long run, do you think it can actually achieve all that much? It comes down to the root of this, the, the lack of coherence about what levelling up is concerned with. By various estimates, there are possibly around a thousand towns in the UK, and you can't actually just give every town in the UK um, a large pot of pot of money and say, and say you know, <laughs> get on with it. And so, and actually, what we've seen with the towns fund is that a fraction of that that, that wider set of towns have been given funding. There's a little bit of confusion about whether or not levelling up is really about regional inequality and it's about the rest of the country, you know, catching up with London, which is kind of the driver of economic growth, or whether it's about the difference between towns and cities. It kind of comes back to this question of actually how how much does Boris Johnson and the Conservatives really believe in redistribution, really believe in intervention, and that ultimately is going to come down to the size of the, the state uh, and the extent of, of public spending. And as we exit COVID, um, it would be um, foolish to think that we won't face particular fiscal challenges. And so I think that's going to be the moment at which we start to understand a little bit better what levelling up actually means. Well, I guess, as with all things in politics, time will tell. Professor Will Jennings, thank you very much. Thanks. There'll be a link to both Will's essay and Daniel's Home Office long read on today's episode description on the Guardian website. And for anyone wanting to hear more about a far less welcoming post-Brexit attitude to greeting EU citizens at the UK border, listen to Wednesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, 
Raphael Baer talks to Anushka Astana about a new hostile environment for EU citizens. But that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Politics Weekly Extra on Friday. Last week, the US Supreme Court agreed to hear a Mississippi case which could roll back decades of abortion rights, which got Jonathan Friedland thinking about the arguments for and against reforming the Supreme Court. To discuss all of that, he speaks to former Deputy Counsel to President Obama, Christopher Kang, so do tune in. For now, though, I want to thank our guests Sonia Soda, Peter Walker, Daniel Trilling, Lord Blunkett and Will Jennings. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.